It's Dr. Stu's Podcast, and you're turning into a special edition of Dr. Stu's Podcast. This time we are going to uh, take a break from our usual routine, and we are going to uh, join Elliot Berlin on his Informed Pregnancy Podcast, where we interview uh, Emily Graham, the star of a new documentary coming out called These Are My Hours, and her, and her midwife, Carrie Glenn. They're from South Carolina. And the film is going to be available uh, as a 40-hour rental on, on visiting Vimeo On Demand. You can find it now using the birth code BIRTHNERD, B-I-R-T-H-N-E-R-D, all caps, for a discount. Uh, Emily's also excited to announce that their first batch of DVDs will be available at their website at www.thesearemyhours.com by early April, and you'll be able to purchase or rent the digital copies on Amazon as well. The DVD and digital version of the film will be subtitled in 14 languages and closed captioned in English for the hearing impaired. During this uh, hour-long episode with Dr. Berlin, uh, we talked to Emily and Carrie about the the film, about the production of the film, about the birth world in general, about VBAC, about private membership associations, uh, among other things. Bliss joins in. So without further ado, here's Elliot and the cast of These Are My Hours. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. This is Dr. Elliot Berlin, and you've tuned into a unique episode today as we team up with the hosts of Dr. Stu's podcast to talk about a new birth film. She is a natural birth advocate who is currently a home birth midwife, childbirth educator, placenta encapsulator, and a natural birth and family consultant, Birthing Bliss Young. Hello. I love being here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, my goodness. You'll have to come back again and again. You've been here before. Again and again. I know. I love it. We have so many more topics to talk to you about. Ongoing. He is an OBGYN, author of the book Fearless Pregnancy, and now has two papers, Home Birth with an Obstetrician, a series of 135 out-of-hospital births and breach births at home, outcomes of 60 breach and 109 cephalic planned home birth and birth center births. He's a lecturer and fellow podcaster, Dr. Stuart J. Fishbein. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, I like your microphone better than mine. So. <laughs> we can switch seats if you want. <laughs> no, no. Better than my Dr. Stu's podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> Having microphone envy. Well, let's see, we'll see how it comes out. We'll do a cast off. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're talking about the documentary film, These Are My Hours, with two honored guests who both appear in the film. Our first guest came to birth work through her own life-changing birth experience 10 years ago. Soon after her birth, she began apprenticing with a nurse midwife attending home births, including many births in the rural outreaches of Amish country. As a doula, she attended births in all settings, and after a few more years of studying midwifery, started her practice via the PMA model, Private Membership Association and attended home births as a midwife. She's the subject of These Are My Hours, and after a year of conception and miscarriages, eventually gave birth on film. Emily Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And we're honored you guys came in from far away. From South Carolina. And your Uber didn't even drop you off close to the studio. <laughs> in the rain. In the rain. Yeah, the L.A. rain. Like our our <laughs> four <laughs> days a year that we get rain. We have had some lift adventures oh, in the really? city. Mm-hmm. We could do a, probably a whole podcast on lift adventures. <laughs> uh, our other guest today was planning a VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, in 2005 and found midwifery care inaccessible in her home area, so she traveled out of state to give birth. 
Frustrated by this burden placed on women planning VBAC, she began studying midwifery and entered into a traditional apprenticeship with the deeply religious midwives of upstate South Carolina to become a licensed midwife. She trained as a hypnodoula and incorporated holistic lactation into her practice. She has practiced as a home birth midwife through state licensure and within the PMA model with Emily. She's a midwife featured in These Are My Hours, Carrie Glenn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I found the film to be um, really beautiful and, and pretty intense and unlike anything I've seen uh, before. So I have so many questions about your backgrounds and what led you to this point. Let's just start with... Can we start with PMA? PMA. That's PMA model. That's exactly what I was going to say. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> PMA. Emily usually starts that, and I, I add, you were the thread that explained that model to me. So the PMA stands for Private Membership Association, and it essentially is a group of people who come together intentionally and kind of remove themselves from the public sphere, and they operate as a private club. And in doing so, they waive the responsibility of the state to impose restrictions on their behaviors. So as long as they are not endangering others, they are free to operate as they wish. So they don't have to follow the statutes in their state. They can claim their autonomy to make choices within the PMA. So we don't operate in the public. People have to join and become a member and then we can serve them as a midwife even outside the bounds of a license. Similar to the buyers clubs that were popularized um, mm -hmm. in the 80s for like experimental drug use with AIDS patients, like those were, it's a constitutional test was how it, it sort of began. Like can you extend the bounds of like the religious encapsulation of models and there are some chiropractors or even physicians who are practicing within the PMA model in order to do things that may be out of scope mm -hmm. in their state, like chiropractors who may want to use acupuncture, but, you know, state if board state prohibits that. So they may retain licensure, but they may have clients who practice who, you know, take off that hat and we are in a separate, even physical space. Right. So you in particular, you're, you're both. I actually you... turned in my license because it was an awkward ground for me to Could be in the middle. Like right, and I specifically wanted to serve a pretty fringe population. Mm -hmm. Me too. <laughs> I'm well, turning in my license. <laughs> 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 Me too. Well, I'm, I'm going back and like taking advantage of the experienced midwife route before it closes. I do want to have the CPM. It wasn't important to me when I licensed in South Carolina because they didn't reciprocate in any way. It wasn't acknowledged, and it was just you know an additional little bit of paperwork. But then. As the process in South Carolina changed, and now it is a CPM state, and it's much simpler, but and my NARM scores are still good or whatever. It's just a little bit of paperwork to have that before the 2020 route closes. And I don't know that I want to use that for licensure to practice. I'm interested in, in some other endeavors around writing and teaching and speaking with midwifery more mm -hmm. than active practice and being on call anymore. Yeah, we did a, we did a podcast mm -hmm. about a year ago. Um, she was from the Midwest. From yeah. a Nebraska birthkeeper. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, who Angie. Was Angie. Angie, who um, was also in the PMA. And um, she gave a very good explanation. But we got some really mixed uh, uh, comments in the comment section of people who thought that this was great and people who thought that this was probably crazy and won't stand up in court. So has there been? There hasn't been any test for midwifery PMAs, but there have been 
And of course, this is not my research, but the person who set my PMA up said that there has been 70 cases to the Supreme Court where they have challenged the PMA with other groups and that they have all held up because it's based in constitutional law. You know, the the amendments that give us the rights to property and privacy and association. So rather than a standard informed consent, it's like a 20-page document that really explicitly lays out you know, pretty much. So you have you have like a, a lawyer or somebody that sets this up for you. That is that how you did it? Or I'm not a lawyer because lawyers are licensed, but someone who is experienced in constitutional law, who okay. is like us, but of lawyering. You know, so like, a lawyer PMA, <laughs> right? Sorta. Right. Cool. How do you find really people like that? <laughs> Internet. The way you find everything. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> well, we've met therapists practicing that way also that are, you know, extending bounds of practice along those lines and, you know, popularizing the model of membership, licensure or not, that's, you know. So my understanding is, right, the government, the state government and the federal government, but also the state government more specifically, is believes that they have a role to protect consumers. So they make laws that they believe are protecting consumers in the consumer's best interest. But by joining the PMA, a consumer can say, I don't want your oversight and protection. I want right. you to tell my provider what they can do or what they can't do. Correct. I opt out of those protections. I don't need them when it comes to this situation. So the PMA should have a reason to exist. You know, like the Dallas Buyers Club, they sold the medication for AIDS to people with AIDS. So they met for that reason. You don't just join a PMA and it's for Everything it has Raw an explicit purpose. A, mm. a, so in states where that's prohibited, you, yeah, laser therapy, supplements. Or, hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, and really, you can be pursued or found at fault regardless of the type of informed consent or license that you have. You know, it just depends on the situation. So so explicitly that, I mean, this lays out the boundaries of the relationship also really clearly that you are not really working with the public at all. People don't seek out the PMA model and go through all of that informed consent who are just looking for a standard experience. They're people who want or need something outside the the typical. So clients who want to come see you, at what point do they, are they looking for a PMA midwife or they find you and then you explain to them the model or is it both? No, people aren't usually looking for a PMA. They mostly have not heard of it, and we mm-hmm. explain it to them. And it's been really great in the sense that it forces the conversation about autonomy and responsibility because, of course, we know that a pregnant person is giving themselves prenatal care more than anybody else 24 hours a day and that they inherently are responsible for their own health and for the choices that they make. So this kind of makes us talk about that. Mm-hmm. There isn't a provider and a client or a patient in a PMA. It's member to member. You can choose whose advice to listen to, who to pay for services. And you state on your paperwork that that's your responsibility to make that choice or not. Mm-hmm. We can give you advice and then you do what you want with that. Sure. I mean, Is it not more popular because people just don't know about it? Um, because stuff like that in California would be Great. I mean, we have so many rules for midwives in California <laughs> mm-hmm. that they can't do this and they can't do that. And there's gray zones where they're afraid to do this and they're afraid to do that. And if they were part of a PMA, then they could do what their skill level allowed them to do. And also, 
you know, it's much more originalist in that uh, it's an agreement between two people where we don't necessarily mm-hmm. need the government involved in every right. aspect of our lives. And I think a lot of us at this table feel that way. In ideal form, but I don't know this about California, but I've heard um, that similar to our environment, there's just a lot of personal dynamic that would prohibit necessarily collecting lots of midwives. And then you have licensure and non-licensure and competitive environments. And so there's still referral issues or people who want to step between both worlds may face a little bit of you know, awkward social dynamics in order to You have to a very get... nice way of putting, uh, <laughs> putting the fact that uh, people aren't always nice to each right, other. Right, that gossip prevails. <laughs> yeah. Right, that there's, you know, reasons that you practice outside goal. the model right. or that really the reason you practice outside the model is for clients because the model doesn't serve quite a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. We all, yeah. yeah, we all agree on that. Yeah. Um, let's go back a little bit to your experiences that got you into this world in the first place. Um, your case, Emily, you said that you had a life-changing... The life birth world or this world? Well, well, <laughs> well, the birth world, I guess, was just getting pregnant and having a kid. But um, becoming a birth provider, right? You said it started with a life-changing birth experience. Yeah. So just talk about my birth well, yeah. What was what, what was, was life changing about yeah. it? Oh, it was the first birth that you dream for everybody. I heard about home birth when I was twenty five. A friend got pregnant unexpectedly, and she knew a doula who introduced her to a midwife and told me, "I'm having a home birth." And the second the words left her lips, I was like, "I'm having a home birth one day." <laughs> I didn't know anything about birth. I didn't have a partner. But it was almost like I had forgotten that I had already decided to have a home birth, and now I remembered. That's how easy it was for me, decision done. So, you know, when I met my husband and we decided to have a baby, I was like, oh, yeah, by the way, (laughs) to break it to you, but we're having this baby at home. And he was kind of devastated because he didn't know that was like a thing at all. Um, But he met the midwife and everything was fine. And I just had the most straightforward, beautiful, undisturbed experience. And I didn't know I was really fortunate in that for a first mm-hmm. birth until I later attended more typical first births. And was like, ooh, I see, you know, how really hard it can be for a first-time mom. But you it was soon I, after that birth that you got into birth work. Oh, like immediately. Like I just couldn't put the books down. I was reading the birth partner for like the 15th time mm-hmm. and – so it was from having a good experience. I felt like I was on top of the world. I didn't, I was high for months. You know, every time I saw someone, I was like proselytizing and people really hated me because I couldn't stop talking. <laughs> you know, really, they didn't want to hear it. I lived in a small town and no one ever had a home birth and they didn't after me either. And I kept, they were just no, not ready for that, I guess. Um, I kept talking about it and talking about it and yeah, when my baby was nine months old, I started apprenticing. I wanted that for other people. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, the undisturbed part of your experience? Because that's what yeah. really struck me about your film as well. So I'm sure that your experience influenced wanting to show that to other women. Right. You mean for my first birth? Yeah. Yeah, so I was a bit of a drama queen during my pregnancy. At 18 weeks, went to the ER, and it turned out it was round ligament pain, (laughs) that sort of thing. 
and I gained a lot of weight. I'm very tiny, and I have a husband who's literally double my weight, and he's 6'4". So the, the midwives were just had like a internal like red flag. Just I lived in a town with a really a hospital that was not going to be very pleasant for a transport situation. Mm-hmm. So they were just a little bit nervous about the whole situation. I was two hours from them. And so my water broke at 38 weeks, and I call in the middle of the night, and I'm not going to go back to sleep. And then the labor started in the morning, and I was like, you need to come down. Like, it feels like it's something already. She was like, okay, I'll just, like, do a couple things first, and I'll be down there. Like, I have appointments, and then I'll come to see you because, you know, she's probably thinking, here goes the four days I'll spend at her house, right? (laughs) And... It just got, it was six hours total, the labor. It just mm-hmm. went like zero to 60. And I was like screaming in the pool, like, tell her to come now. And mm. she's like, oh, she's like, all right, doing the drama thing. And she came. And I was like naked in the pool, like writhing around. And she was like, oh, damn, I better my bags, you know. <laughs> and one time she asked if she could check my cervix because she was really hoping I was like not two centimeters and I was already this crazy. And she was like, oh, your baby is like right there. (laughs) And so she was there for only two hours before the baby was born at 4 p.m. on a Wednesday. Just like the best ever gift to give your (laughs) midwife, right? And so it was just me and my husband and my sister who didn't know anything about birth. And so they just sat there and I had labor. Similar to what we witness in the movie. Yeah, it was by default that time, but I learned that I really, really liked that, Mm -hmm. that it helped me be efficient. Yeah, you labor like I labor, Mm. by the way. I mean, without without all the, I don't think I have all the external dialogue, and maybe that was for the movie. (laughs) No, that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the director didn't say cut and and do that screaming uh, four-letter word stuff again? (laughs) That third take was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but just, you know, wanting to wanting to really be left alone to do my work, you know, don't touch me, don't talk to me. So um, watching it, I, I really understood, I think, a lot of what was, ha- you know, your desires internally because it felt that way too. So Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people resonate with that mm-hmm. and they also find it maybe fascinating that you really don't have to do anything at all. And there's a certain group of people who feel really sad for me that I was alone, as mm-hmm. they put it. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who wouldn't want that. Which I think is why I brought up the undisturbed birth part of it, because I notice sometimes in, in um, interviews with people, I'll say, you know, I really believe in undisturbed birth. And I can see by their body language whether it's something that they're like, oh, yeah, that's appealing to me or oh, my God, she's going to leave me alone, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that in our culture, it's not always something that's really honored or they don't really, like, totally understand what the value would be in having an undisturbed birth unless you really explain it to them as well. Right. Yeah. doesn't and, mean it's for everyone either. And I would be totally disturbed if I was truly alone. Yes. Right. I want people there this far away, a couple feet away, <laughs> but not to talk or touch or anything. Right. To influence your yes. experience and, and kind of finding your rhythm. Right. Right. To be undisturbed in a trust environment mm-hmm. feels not abandoning, but to be 
you know, the opposite is a whole different experience. Yeah. Well, that's how all other mammals give birth right. is, as Sarah Buckley usually says, it's private, safe, and unobserved. And even though you didn't want to be completely unobserved, it would have been fine for you if everyone was in a different room, I think. They didn't need to be... No. Oh, you wanted them? Yeah, nearby. <laughs> nearby, not even in another room in the house. Yeah, I want them to be very close to me. Because by the film, in most of the part of the early part of the film, it didn't look like there was anybody there. She makes yeah, eye I wander around a lot. And some of the most intense parts, like Jason, I need to look at you. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Or at least she and I have some long eye contact. Well, we do realize that there's a there's yeah. a there's a cameraman <laughs> and probably <laughs> yeah. a lighting person and something standing like six there, feet away. Yeah, there, but there are eight crew members there. That's people nearby. Yeah, that's not private, safe, and unobserved, though. It just made me, when you said about the animals, I was just picturing how big that strap would have to be for an elephant to listen to the heartbeat and listen. Put them on their back, too. Yeah, right, and check the cervix. That would be quite a task. Um, Before we take a break, Carrie, it was your VBAC experience that made you skip town. What, What happened there? I had an opposite labor of Emily's. I was late. With your first? Yes, late and long and not happy transport that was, uh, I had a C-section under general. And so, of course, I wanted to avoid that experience again at all cost. And at the time that I had my first midwives in my state could do VBACs and the regulations had changed in just that, uh, that short time between them to not allow that. And so I, I wrote to midwives in neighboring states. I, you know, called people all over the country. I didn't have the internet at my house. I would go over to my mom's and look people up and sent my full medical records to near strangers. And finally, just sent a Barnes and Noble and found Ina May's Guide to Childbirth at that time. And I didn't know her. I hadn't read her out of all the 25 other books I had read at that time obsessively. And I called the farm mm. and asked if I could come. And Sharon told me yes. And so I came and I took my mom and my parents probably thought I was totally crazy. I want to go to a hippie commune <laughs> and have my baby. <laughs> but how yeah. far how far was that for you? Six hours or so. I stayed for three weeks with my then husband and my older child, who was three almost. And my mom and her sister came at the end of the second week to help with my older child, you know, as labor approached. But then I had another cesarean there, and it was a, you know, still both of my labors had wonderful parts of them, wonderful experiences. I had a prior pelvic injury that was pretty severe that probably played a role in some long malpositioning of both. And anyway, of course, when I came home, I didn't immediately want to become a midwife. I didn't really feel qualified to do that. So I worked in lactation. But then everyone else kept asking me, why don't you become a midwife? Will you come to my birth? Why don't you become a midwife? You know more than anybody. Why don't you do this? You would be great. And there wasn't a midwife who, even when I was looking for one in my town and I found them, they weren't ones that I felt I could have the type of relationship that would have yielded a very trusting space for me. I was young and very inhibited, and it's a very religious culture. You know, while I grew up that way also, it was not a comfortable space to be disinhibited. 
for me. And that the farm was a little bit more, it was very far from home and mm. very weird. And, you know, she was more like my mom or my grandmother than an intimate friendship. And so I envisioned in my mind this model of like who really was the odont midwife that, you know, that's the, the ideal book I was reading. And, you know, where was that midwife? And who would she have been? Would she have been attending hundreds of births or would she have been a close woman friend? you know, a sister, an aunt, a cousin. or So I, I sought to, to find a community of really close, like-minded women and just be the midwife of them and, and not really like a public, large practice ever and felt like that would have better outcomes. That was what I was looking for, was someone who would let me be and do all of that and go through everything I needed to go through in my home. That's why I wanted to do it at home because things might get crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, but I felt like I had to have a kind of sanitized experience with the providers I chose. But there were, I just wanted to make another personality choice, I guess, mm-hmm. in town. And then also there wasn't a, a VBAC choice, and that was just unacceptable. I didn't openly ever provide that, but, you know, I did have people that made their way to me over time. Has that changed? No. No. There, there are CNMs who practice in the state, and there are people who cross from other places, border states, and mm-hmm. attend. But CPMs can't legally attend a VBAC at home in South Carolina. The nurse midwives have to see VBACs at the hospital and not the birth center. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how are the hospitals regarding their support for VBAC? The limited choices. The hospital in our town is pretty good. It's a teaching hospital, and it's very busy, and the transports are pretty. They're pretty smooth. And before the CNMs had a birth center affiliated with the hospital or associated with it, they practiced in the hospital itself and really made a lot of changes in the general dynamic of acceptance among the resident culture. So even average students understand the importance of low lights or you know, that people are going to typically maybe refuse things when they've been on a transport. It's not a shock situation anymore. They change the culture a little bit in the hospital. It's good because they sh- and people have to understand that VBAC is really just a normal birth. And unfortunately, it's been labeled, it's been lumped in with breach and twins, and they always use those as these high-risk situations. Now, I've done a lot of research into this, and I looked at the numbers in, of midwives in, in hospital-based birthing during my time, and find that the success rates for VBAC are significantly higher at home than they are in the hospital, simply by the model by which women are cared for at home. And even with hospitals that want to be VBAC-friendly, they still have protocols and policies they need to follow, which sort of do restrict the ability for them to be successful. What is unique about VBAC is it is almost always going to have an element of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And when you re-enter not only labor itself, but a paranoid culture, Yep, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're just going to feed off of one another. It's a setup for failure. Totally. Totally. All right. We're going to take a quick break. No. (laughs) Don't worry. We'll be right back to discuss more about These Are My Hours. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. We are teamed up with Dr. Stu and Bliss Young from Dr. Stu's Podcast, and we're continuing our chat about the movie These Are My Hours with Emily Graham and Carrie Glenn. All right, let's talk about the film. When did you decide to make a movie? Well, I didn't actually decide to make a movie. I heard from Scott 
in, oh goodness, it must have been early 2015. I remember whose birth we were on the way to, but <laughs> I could tell That's how you time exactly. time is marked. <laughs> he had heard a birth story from a friend of his, his first birth story in, in his 30s, and his jaw dropped on the floor, and he was like, well, damn, that's the hero's journey, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't someone make a movie about that? And she was like, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're a filmmaker. So <laughs> <laughs> it took him a little while to get up the nerve to make a film about birth as mm-hmm. a single man. But he was finally ready and was reaching out to mothers and birth workers, kind of just getting the lay of the land and was seeking a subject and, as you might imagine, was not having very many bites mm-hmm. on the line. And so he called me because he knew a friend of mine. And she said, you should, you know, I know this midwife, you should call her. And serendipitous, I had just, we had just decided to have one last baby just before he called. I wasn't pregnant, but, you know, he asked if I knew anyone that maybe would want bunch of guys to come film their birth <laughs> and I sort of like when I heard about home birth and I knew right away I was like I knew I would say me but I was like don't be like that crazy and say it right now just let it settle for a minute you know and 15 minutes into the conversation I'm <laughs> listening to myself say you know I wouldn't I'll do it um, I'm not pregnant but don't worry like I can fix that and <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so it was just like that uh, I like adventure, mm-hmm. and it seemed like a really cool platform to tell a story about something that's really important to me. So, you know, I got pregnant pretty quickly and miscarried. And, of course, I had announced the pregnancy to them right away because they need to plan for production nine months from then. And so I also had to announce the miscarriage to them, which was, I thought, very good for them to all understand, really, that birth is about death, too, often. Uh, But then, so I got pregnant again a couple months later, and I miscarried again. And I miscarried five times Mm -hmm. in the year. And it was really vulnerable because I announced every time. And I would have to tell them it was very early, around six weeks or before. And I kept thinking, they've got to be thinking, we got to get a girl who can stay pregnant Mm -hmm. or something. You know, I was... It was very challenging for me to believe that they were going to stick with me and that it was going to work out, and they did. I'm really grateful, and I think it was a good learning experience for them to really get ready to be with birth because they had been with vulnerability and the shifts of pregnancy over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so that was a whole year and then nine months of pregnancy. So when the baby finally came, it was like a baby elephant was born. Like we've been waiting so, so long to have this film made, mm-hmm. much more than normal pregnancy, double that. How did you set up for filming the birth? What were you looking to capture specifically and how did you set it up just from a cinematography point of view? The first thing I ever heard about the film from her was that it was combining birth and poetry as opposed to experts and commentary. Mm. And poetry is my first love before I cared about birth. And then I realized I didn't have anything really of depth to write poems about. And mm. when I got pregnant, I you know, shifted all of my focus towards that. And now I've come back to poetry. So when she said that, I was like, oh, my, this is the 
the project that I've been waiting for, too, in that way, and a chance to present my thoughts on midwifery as well, the presentation of, you know, a support or service character rather than a savior character, which is how typically the provider is presented. So the point of using poetry and the lack of experts and commentary was really in alignment with the way that we've served our clients, which is to really stay out of the logical mind when you're in the birth space as much as possible. And all other films have, they go between birth scenes and engaging the rational mind and birth scenes and engaging the rational mind. And, you know, the idea that you could use this platform as a storytelling and artistic moment to also present all these important ideas was the most exciting thing I'd ever heard about it. Mm. It didn't feel like a midwifery movie to me either. No, yeah, not at all. It's yeah. not. Not at yeah. all. It's not at all. So. And particularly, it's mm-hmm. not a midwifery movie because it's not about the midwife as yeah. much as I love my midwife. <laughs> right. Because she's my midwife and because she's my friend and I'm so grateful that all of it deeply love her. It's a birth is not about a midwife. Agreed. And like to offer an art film, and we'll speak to like it being an art film as far as setting it up in a second, like it it really is an art film that centers around a woman's experience of giving birth as worthy of the full movie, not a scene, not a histrionic, crazy, ugly leg spread scene, but a whole art film just about that day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's not even about midwifery. It's not about home birth even. It's no, just it's about, about and right. women rights of passage. Right, was that your idea? Was it Scott's idea? Was it uh, how did that come about? Where you decided this is the way we're going to do this film? It evolved over time. A lot of conversations, hours and hours of talking about what I wanted. I didn't want to sacrifice anything that I wanted for my birth for the film. So the film was going to have to capture what I did and who was there for me, and. It was really great because the filmmakers gave me a lot of autonomy in telling my story and shaping the way they presented the story in a way that honored me and what I wanted to say. I think a lot of times it seems like a documentary captures raw footage and then it's shaped into the story that would sell maybe or that is interesting or sensational. And I don't know how much input a subject really gets they're usually not involved in post-production. I mean, I've been working on the film almost daily since I was pregnant. And mm. so it's it was really cool to be able to tell it even to decide what parts were important. Like, there's no way you can take that part out. It might look like nothing to you, like the scene where my legs are being cleaned mm-hmm. by my midwife in the shower. Like, I will kill someone if they take that scene out. There's no way. And a thousand conversations about what that means in our experiences, both as birthing women, as attendants, as, you know, every aspect of the story was that way. Like, and at every birth, what is the story, the overall always story, the transformation of a woman, the initiation? Well, I'm really glad you left that in because that is a a memory of the film that is really powerful for me. Mm. Just the, the thing that you had just gone through and then now someone is caring for you, really rather emotional, yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, a person who has taught me and who I see as an elder, even though she's not that much older than me, but as far as with birth, she is my elder. I, I come behind her, and now she's down on her knees cleaning blood off my thighs. Like, 
it's so humbling. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And she's mighty, you know, though she needs my help. It's one of my favorite moments in birth always. Yeah, we talked about that long before that he had no idea what that scene would look like. But we told him, you're going to have to, you've got to <laughs> know that this is important. He's got to be right in there at those moments. Mm. Well, yeah, so how did you set that up cinematographically? Oh, well, I didn't do anything. I was like massively pregnant. So I was just doing that. But there was a crew of mostly guys who came from San Francisco a week before my due date, cutting it very close. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They arrived and they had a bunch of equipment actually donated by some companies who thought it was like very interesting that their stuff was going to be used to make a film about birth. Mm -hmm. And it got mailed to my house, and as soon as they arrived to my house, the crew started setting up, like, extensive equipment. They built a rig system and installed it on my ceiling wow. in the living room <laughs> to hold the camera. So it rolled back and forth both ways. There is a technical term for this, but I don't know it. And the camera was attached to it, and it could go all the way down to the floor seamlessly because Of course, we didn't know how long it would be, and we didn't want the camera guys to have to hold the heavy equipment for hours Mm -hmm. if they had to. And, of course, the lights went on, but there had to be many filters available because what time will it be? Will it be rainy, sunny, nighttime? Will it change from night to day to night or day to night to day? How, you know, we know. Nobody knows. Yeah. And there was a a dolly and all of that, and also a moving camera that could follow her around. And and shades on the window in case mm-hmm. the sun came through and blinded. So several layers of shades that someone would have to switch outside if something shifted. And we had to put rugs on the floor of my hardwoods because it echoes, like stuff that I, I would never think about, think about. From technical perspective. Yes. And there were mics everywhere and potted plants and we're, I mean, we were wearing them, but it was also some reality show stuff where it's, it's everywhere. There was a camera in my bedroom closet that pointed directly at my bed and just ran 24 <laughs> hours a day mm-hmm. to capture early labor because I said it'll be when I'm in bed. Mm-hmm. Most likely. We all know that's when it starts. So it wasn't recording, but you could like post record two hours. Mm. If if something happened, right? But it didn't make it any less awkward. <laughs> there was <laughs> a camera, time. and yeah. then we discovered a little microphone like up on the headboard. So <laughs> all of the, you know, and when you're hugely pregnant, it's turning over. It's. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought like they have been getting some very nice <laughs> sound stuff recorded. Yeah. So it was a challenge. I was really excited for that part when I wasn't so pregnant. But of course, the couple of days before I gave birth, you know, I was like, ugh, about everything, right? People, they're always in my house and they're moving stuff around. And they wanted me to like, where would you go? Come out of your bedroom and just show us where you might walk. We want (laughs) to see how the camera would, where we would place, you know, practice. I get it. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing so instead, my husband and her mother play I, acted the birth. I locked yes. myself in the bedroom. Yes. I nice. come out. <laughs> you guys do, will figure it out. Do they get credit out. in the film? They are. They are you're thanked. <laughs> oh, they're yes. thanked. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was more of a challenge to get used to all of that in my really deep nesting time than it was to have cameras there while I was actually giving birth. That was a bigger challenge for me mm. to let everyone be in my space. I had no personal space. I was 
being interviewed a lot to create the voiceover. Mm-hmm. So I would spend a couple hours a day answering questions, and I really felt like they were ripping my life apart in a way, in the way that you feel everything's being ripped apart when you're about to have a baby. Everything is very hard. So when they would leave at night, I would sit down in the living room, and it was just so surreal, this set everywhere. And I would kind of meditate with the equipment, like get Mm. to know it. Hey, camera, (laughs) you know, hey, pole that is meant to look like it's a coat rack because it's holding stuff up on the ceiling. Like it was very odd. And I had to come to peace with these pieces of equipment as if they were like people that I invited to my birth so that when I saw them, it just felt like, yes, there is that huge camera over there. That's where it is. It belongs there. It's been there. And it was normal for me. Yeah. So I had to get used to my space being different Mm -hmm. because we wanted it to be artfully done. We wanted it to look like my home, but not in a way that was distracting because we were making an art film. Mm -hmm. Did it throw you off to have them there at your birth at all? Do you think that it affected any of the way that you birthed? No, not even for a second. Great. And people have a hard time believing that sometimes Mm -hmm. because how could you not be affected by eight guys and equipment (laughs) and lights? But I kind of feel like when people come to your birth, even very cool birth workers, even your mom, they all want the baby to come out. And just as soon as that can happen, that's good, right? That's what we're all doing because then it can all be, you can not be in labor. We can all go home. Everything, like, everything's fine and we'll all like wrap this up. And so <laughs> let's do that as soon as we can. You know, we're not going to do anything too hasty, but everyone's energy is a little bit forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And the film crew was totally the opposite because if everything happened too smoothly – And too quickly, there would be no footage. Mm. So their energy was just take your time, do whatever. (laughs) Not too quick. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. make some noise, go in there, (laughs) sure, take a nap, we'll capture that, just whatever. So I feel like their energetics were very slow and accepting. And so I think they actually like helped the energy of the birth rather Mm. than what appears to be what people would expect that they would interfere, but I think they were just great. Makes a lot of sense. I'm going to recommend it to my patients from now on. dudes coming in with cameras and microphones. So I have a question, though, about, about the crew. Um, you know, how many of them had actually seen a birth before, and were they sort of in awe, as many of us are when we see, uh, when we go to a birth? Oh, please invite them on the podcast. I'm dying to know well, everything they think yeah. about it. I literally wanted to keep them hostage and interview them for like weeks (laughs) after. They had to leave almost right away after the birth, like the next couple of days. Their reactions are priceless in a photograph afterwards. They're all like (laughs) passed out on the floor of the living room. Someone looks like they're sucking their thumb. They're Mm. curled up in little balls and then they... It would have been really great if they would have been one of your hidden cameras actually filming (laughs) the crew, (laughs) filming the birth. That would have been really cool. (laughs) Yeah, so one of them had a child who was born by cesarean, so he had seen that birth. And one of the camera guys worked on 16 and pregnant. Mm. So he had seen a lot of births that were quite different. different (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, that's it. The rest of them had never seen a birth, didn't have children. And they were all traveling, you know, 
like we have now done in the opposite direction, dealing with jet lag, middle of the night birth, and they literally finished everything completely first test run the night that she went into wow. labor. So they were really sports about all yeah. of that. They just took it in stride. Yeah. And no, then we're gone. There was another guy who <laughs> yeah. had seen a birth, but I forget about him because he, I never met him. He is from our town. He's a boom operator and something happened with the original boom operator. And so they were short one. So they looked for a local guy and Greenville's not exactly a film town, but they found a guy and said, why don't you come over tomorrow and we'll <laughs> all run through, meet everyone. We'll show you the stuff, whatever. And and they called him at 2 a.m. instead. And we're like, so do you still want the job? Because it's now. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he came and had never met anybody, had never been to my house, and just did his job. And I was laying on the couch afterwards nursing my baby, and I kind of was coming to back to the room and looking around. And I see this kind of furry thing near my face. <laughs> And it's the microphone, and I, like, travel up the pole that it's being held. A strange man is standing down there I've never seen in my life holding it. And I just, like, burst out laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, there's just a random guy down there. And um, he was so great. We were alone in my bedroom later, kind of waiting for the crew to come back in. And it was, like, awkward. It was just the two of us. And I'm, like, naked in the bed with my baby. And then... I turned to him. I was like, "Hi, I'm Emily," and we just like <laughs> all sorts of laughing. Like, <laughs> I wonder what he normally films. That's probably. And so he had seen his children be born. So to him, he just oh. thought, like, "Oh, isn't this nice?" <laughs> um, yeah. How's uh, the film been received? Well, that's kind of a complex answer. I would say almost everyone who has seen the film is deeply moved by it. I don't think I've heard really any feedback that was negative. And the film world has been a challenge. When we have approached mainstream distributors and shown them the film, they will say that they are personally very moved by it and they don't really know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't know where it belongs. I don't think that our culture really knows what to do with a woman who is okay getting up in the middle of the night and not brushing her hair or her teeth and getting naked and doing whatever she wants and being powerful and vulnerable and bleeding. And there's no trauma and there's no savior. Where's the category for that? Mm. I don't think we have a good framework for where to put her. You know, Wonder Woman wears a bodice. She's very beautiful. And that's like our heroine, right? Like the sex pot. And then we have pornography, where women act and they put on a show for an audience and they don't show us what it's like to be embodied truly. And then we have this film, which doesn't tell you what to believe or what to feel or explain anything. And it's like a piece of art. Everyone has a response to it that is because of their whole history. It's unique. But I don't really know anyone who hasn't had an emotional response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, have, I have a question that goes along with that, Mary. Um, there's not a day goes by where I don't deal with this question in, in some form, and I know the answer for everyone here, how we feel about it, but what would you say to someone who thinks what you did or what we do is unsafe? What would you say to somebody like that? I know that we all probably deal with this every day, but I'm curious between the two of you 
and you're going around the country and you know people that you're showing it to are people who probably want to see it but there are going to be some people who think we're all nuts for doing what we do so what do you, what would you say to that person life has lots of tremendously unsafe decisions every day much more so than birth getting in cars and you know, I mean, really, by probability, I just find it actually is much safer than what people estimate. I mean, you're invested in research, and if people spent as much time looking at that, even information beyond their intuition, I think both will tell you the same, that it is largely safer than your gut reaction, largely because of what media has shown us, that are false yeah, there's representations. Just, there's, such, there's such judgmental uh, behavior out there for what we do. And, and I think uh, it's, it's negative. I know that this is sort of a timeless podcast, but there's a lot of stuff going around, probably more so now than before, about bad outcomes and stuff like that in the birthing, home birthing world. And, you know, I could say the same thing. You know, you could go to a hospital that has a 70% C-section rate and you could do a story on that and that we would know that that's not a reflection on all hospitals. But right. yet there's some, there seems to be, you know, when there's one bad outcome in a home birth that it's I told you so people come out in, in droves and this is such a beautiful thing you guys are both so eloquent when you talk about it that I'm just curious as to what you would say to someone who says you put your baby in terrible yeah. danger I don't I mean ugh, I just I'm so over that conversation I know but it's gonna <laughs> not yeah. to, I'm not saying it to you I just feel like I don't even want to talk to people about that because if that's where they're stuck then what can I tell them and I think it's largely because it's women having babies. And we have a lot of stories about men who do some really crazy stuff. And it's dangerous, too. There's a movie about a man who walked across a tightrope, across Niagara Falls. Oh, I just saw I just saw Free Solo. That's kind of unsafe. You see, you see right. Free Solo, the guy that climbs uh, in Yosemite without a rope? Someone yeah. cut his arm off in a cave. And it oh, was, I saw that. That's unsafe. <laughs> You shouldn't cut off your arm. We shouldn't have been in the first place. Yes, you shouldn't hike alone. And and yet we accept that there is risk when other people want to have rites of passage or to push the limits of their body in ways that most people don't want to or a lot of people don't want to, but they choose to. They know that there is a risk. Of course, there's a risk to birth. There is, but... There's also a risk to leaving your child the first time you do somewhere or you know, making a medical decision, those things, it, it will come at some point. And birth is the transformative, you know, marker. But everyone has a different test Yeah, or I think what you said is probably is. the most important thing when you said, I don't even want to deal with these people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's no convincing Because, me. you know, from a devil's advocate point of view, they'll say if that guy tight-roped across holding a baby, he probably would get a lot more <laughs> flack than if, if he just did I it I do on think it has to do with having it be that there's a child involved. But I think times are changing, and I think uh, the Me Too movement and a lot of women being in power, and I think conversations are changing, and I hope that that spills over into the birth world. Mm -hmm. I've always believed that it's one of the most empowering moments in a woman's life that has been, you know, I, I used to word, use the word bamboozled. You know, she's been convinced through our culture that she needs to be saved and that this is the right way to do it. And they don't even know what they're missing, which makes me feel really sad. So I think it's so beautiful as an artistic piece, as you put it, which I didn't even really think about that until you put that into mm -hmm. words. 
um, to be able to see visually and emotionally what women have been doing since the beginning of time, you know, which is delivering their babies without anyone necessarily being there or saving them or monitoring them or stepping in or any of that. So Right. And yeah. what a baby does when they come to this world without them being monitored or messed with in the mm-hmm. same way mm-hmm. the mothers are. Mm-hmm. We have seen a lot of videos of women catching their own babies and then Usually it shifts and there's a lot of stuff to do to the baby. Right. Rubbing and yeah, towel and whatever. And, and whatever, it's fine. I've done that to a baby too. And I wish I hadn't to a lot of them, but now I know. And I'll probably do it again sometime. And sometimes it's necessary. But we do it a lot to mm-hmm. babies that don't need anything. And to be able to show people kind of what the baseline is of birth, right? Like when it just happens and you don't need to do anything, this is kind of where we start from as humans. And to have a conversation with people about birth that is inarguable in some way, as art is, you know, like what can we speak to in our experience as a baby being born, rather than typically when you introduce someone to birth, if they're going to have a baby, it, it begins all these arguments rather than a deep investment in themselves over what's about to happen with their baby, a pause. It becomes a contentiousness and not an appreciation of the holiness of the experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm among the people who was moved watching the film, I'm really grateful that you made it and shared uh, your journey and experience. Um, I, I think I also learned a lot about from watching the film and from talking to both of you, just even as someone who attends birth with our clients, just a more thoughtful approach that I didn't necessarily have before. So I really appreciate you. Do you mind saying what you mean by thoughtful approach? I'm very curious. Um, the way you're talking about even the guys who are filming versus the people who come to birth and mm. want things to move forward. You know, being comfortable. I was just recently talking to somebody who said, I'm very, not about birth in general. She's like, I'm very comfortable with quiet. So if we're all in a room together and it's just quiet, a lot of people feel awkward. She feels very comfortable with quiet. If there's nothing to say, she doesn't feel like she needs to make something up to say so that it will be comfortable, you know. Um, You gave me a perspective about birth that it's okay to just be here in this moment and nobody has to say anything or do anything and to just create a little, a wider space close by, Mm -hmm. but a wider space to just let the process be without having to, you know, move it forward. I saw a transport once where a physician had 15 people in the room, all rapt attention, but it was more calm than a lot of the home births had attended because, and I've seen him in other transports, it's just the, his way. And all of the attendants were trained on Emily in that same spirit by conversations with the director, conversations with her that, you know, she was revered. And everything she did was looked at with a a much different energy that if we we took it that way, it might go a lot differently. Yeah. Um, Time went by quickly. Where can we find everybody online? First of all, Dr. Steele and Bliss, where are you guys at? You want me to do it? Okay. um, You can find us at uh, drstewspodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, You can find us, you can find me at birthinginstincts.com. You can find Bliss at birthingbliss.com. 
Mm-hmm. Or Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. On Instagram. Well, I'm on Instagram now, too. I know. Birthing Instinct. I just started <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I figured I had to do it. When the paper came out on the Breach Home Birth, I figured right. I had to do it. And um, then you can you can email me at askdrstu at gmail.com. That's D-R, not D-O-L. <laughs> yeah, not spelled out. <laughs> well, that should be enough ways. Yeah, for someone to I think most people that listen <laughs> and they can also write a letter with a feather and <laughs> inkwell and just mail it over with a sure carrier pigeon. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, where can we find you guys and the film? Yes, the film. So the film can be found at theseareMyHours.com or on all social media. Also at theseareMyHours. Very simple. And for rental on Vimeo on demand. Yeah, Vimeo on demand is where we are. Perfect. Well, everybody, Currently. thanks for joining us here. I'm going to watch it again because mm-hmm. I feel like now that I've talked to you, I'm going to pick up more things about it. Can you put a link in your show notes? Sure. Great. There'll be a link in the show notes. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and at home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So share your feedback in the comments of your podcast app or via email to info at informedpregnancy.com.